Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Adloyd. How do we grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? My dad died when I was 15 and it took me many, many years to be able to express what I had gone through. So I decided to create Griefcast, a chance to talk, share and laugh about the weirdness of grief and death. But with comedians, so it's not that depressing, I promise. Each time I talk to a different comedian about their own personal experience of grief as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club, this is a chance to talk about the peculiar human process of death. Welcome to Griefcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Greasters. I hope you're having an okay week. An interesting tweet this week for someone who was mentioning it was Diwali and that was really hard for her because it's celebration and time. So thinking of you, if Diwali is a difficult time for you, if people are not around with you at this time of year. And also just if it's cold and dark and it's getting to you, I hope you're doing okay. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for the lovely comments about our episode last week with Fee Glover, which was our 100th, 100th episode. Incredible. Can't believe amazing just thank you for staying with us this long and listening and it was a really wonderful episode so uh, if you haven't listened i recommend that you do and if you did enjoy it please as ever rate review and subscribe it really does genuinely help other griefsters find the podcast this week i'm talking to writer richard beard uh, richard has written a lot of books as you'll hear um fiction and non-fiction the one we particularly focus on is a book called the day they went missing which is about his own investigation to death of his brother when they were children it's a book that was actually recommended to me quite a few times by the griefsters and i was always a bit apprehensive about it because it always looked really sad but um as you'll hear in this conversation i have read it and it's such a good book and Especially if you're in the club of the death happened a long time ago and the memories are slipping, I really would recommend it because it really is just basically about memory and grief. Richard came in to talk to me about his brother, Nicky, who died when they were children. Welcome to Griefcast. I'm here today with writer Richard Beard, who is the author of The Day That Went Missing and other books, I should say. 
Oh, but, yes, sorry, it's my turn. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. No, I was just waiting for a fulsome introduction there. Which, no, no, that, I just that, that's it. That's um, it, mate. That's it. That's what you're getting. Uh, yes, ten books. It was a, ten it's my books. tenth book and wow. I'm about to finish my eleventh book. My goodness, how many do you, like, what's your schedule like? Do you do one a year? Uh, no, it's taken no. quite a long time. Yeah. Um, and they are a mix of novels and non-fiction books. Oh, wow. So The Day That Went Missing was the fourth non-fiction and there are six novels. The new one is going to be another novel. Oh, wow. Do you ever sort of think, oh, next one's going to be non-fiction or do you, you just think, oh, that's the, the idea I want to write about? Well, sometimes they, 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 they arrive, non-fiction yeah. um, oh, okay. ideas, things which just demand to be written about. Um, but usually it's just after the exhaustion of a novel. <laughs> uh, non-fiction is a lot easier. Oh, yeah. um, I think the process is easier. It doesn't mean that emotionally or psychologically it's easier, but the process is a lot easier because yeah. you can talk to people and people tell you brilliant stories. And that's a lot easier than sitting on your own at your desk, yeah. just trying to make it all up from scratch. Yeah, but then it's hard to write truth, isn't it? Like, in well, terms in of non-fiction, like, or non-fiction, in like in non-fiction, when you're just sitting, like, oh yeah, I'm only saying because I'm writing something non-fiction at the moment, and I find like I'd rather be with the characters that anything can happen rather than being like, oh, I have to sort of say what actually happened. Do you find that? Yeah, well, I think there's always an element of uh, uh, selection in non-fiction, uh, yeah. and that's why this this term creative non-fiction um, uh, has become you know a very good yeah. description, I think, of what a lot of memoir is in particular, because you're, you're selecting the best bits, if you like, the bits which have the most impact, but they're all true. Yeah. It's just knowing which bits to leave out, really. Um, but again, I think it's easier to decide what to leave out rather than start with absolutely nothing and sort of build up a character. Though there is a great freedom, as you say, in yeah. fiction that you can, I can decide that someone doesn't die. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the great freedom of fiction. In non-fiction, yeah, it's I not like. there. <laughs> You're like, yeah. and they all live and it's fine. But obviously that, you end the story quite quickly when that happens. <laughs> yeah, but you may, the other thing about fiction is you, it, there's a great mystery to it. You, you you're not quite sure where it's going to go when you start and you can end up being much more lethal than you thought you were going to be oh, yeah. at the beginning. And you end up, you do have a tragic mindset at that particular time in your life, which yeah. comes out in the writing. And yet you still go about your daily business and, uh, and are smiley and generally try to be nice to people. But when you're back at your desk, everyone's in, in some kind of tragic, chaotic <laughs> state. Um, and it's, it, that, that's the mystery of writing. That's one of the things which is addictive about it. Is you, you find out things about yourself as you go through it. Yeah, we've talked about this on the show before that um, <laughs> I don't even dare compare what I do to what you do because I feel like you do proper writing. But when I used to write Edinburgh shows, and then I would look back at the Edinburgh show and everybody's dad was dead in the Edinburgh show, like all the characters. And I hadn't quite noticed, like, or their dad was missing or they couldn't find it. Like, it was always looming over one of the characters. And, it, yeah, it, it's some, like you said, it's the mystery of writing. You're like, oh, I see. Yeah, but you, one out. of the things you have to be sure of is that that is actually what you want to write about and it's not just something you've oh. taken off the peg, that you've yeah. seen lots of other stories with a dead dad. And yeah, think, well, yeah. that's good. I mean, the classic example is the, the young adult books where first rule of that is the parents have to be got out of the oh, way. Yeah, they have yeah. to either be away or in prison or, or dead. And or very friend, often yeah, they're classic. dead. Harry Potter. Um, and then that tends that can come back, it seems to me, in, 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 in midlife crisis fiction is that yeah. you have the same liberty. The parents tend to die and therefore middle-aged people have the same freedom as young adult characters. They can That's go and have adventures. Yeah. The Day That Went Missing is a brilliant book. I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I have to say, I did not want to read it. I hope that's all right to say. I felt like, because I get so many books about death, and when I just read the description, I was like, oh, God, oh, oh I can't cope with this one. Um, sorry, I'm being mega honest with you. But I, funny enough, as we were just talking before we started recording, 
several griefsters, as we call the people who listen to the show, were like, you have to read The Day That Went Missing Carriad. It's so good. It's so good. And I was, I think I was afraid of it. I was just really afraid of it. And obviously having a child, I'm, I'm happy to read about people's parents dying, but I find anything young children, I find a bit like I'm worried I'm going to get overwhelmed. I am so glad I picked it up and didn't do the thing that people do to me with this podcast where they go, oh, I don't want to listen to it. I'm a bit like funny about death. And I think, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you, people die. Why aren't you listening to it? Which is probably what you were thinking when I was saying that. Um, and it's, I just thought it was an absolutely incredible book. So we should start, I guess, by saying, who are we remembering today? So who is and who does the book remember as yes in a way? Well, I think um, when you're, it, 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 so it's a death that takes place in my childhood when I was 11 and my brother was nine and he drowned in the sea and I was in the, the water with him and his name was his name was Nicky Nicky um, which was not a name that we said in our family then for for nearly 40 years until I started writing the book wow. um, that he wasn't part of our life we didn't commemorate him in any way uh, I'm remembering him and in a way I'm trying to bring him back to life by writing about him and, and because we had been in a state of denial I just had to find some kind of relics of his life, mm. anything which which reminded us or could remind us of him because he'd been wiped out, he'd been deleted, and I could only put him back together by finding the remnants that were left behind, odd bits and pieces in the attic, some photos, old school magazines, letters, anything I could get my hands on, which turned out to not be very much. But I think when you're remembering any type of grief, and really whenever it happens, you are also remembering the person you were when it happened. Mm. So I'm also remembering myself and the kind of person I was. And I think I'm trying to recapture something of what I was before this major event um, yeah. intervened in my life, really, and just trying to see if there's something of that person that I can get back at the same time as I'm trying to get Nicky back. So it's not just about getting him back. It's about getting something back of perhaps of the the innocence of myself or the, the 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 kind of essence of whatever I was before this event came to really determine the way that I see life which is life is something which is kind of beautiful and precious but it's always open to being interrupted suddenly without warning um, that can make anyone who's experienced that kind of very sudden trauma very cautious I think uh, yeah. because you think well you know the, the uh, an aeroplane can fall out of the sky at any time on my head and therefore I must be careful. And that then limits the ways in which you can live. I mean, that's totally how I dealt with it. It's funny because not like, so my dad died when I was 15 and not everybody deals with it in that cautious way. I think it's really interesting that you say that because that's definitely what I, it made me feel like, oh, okay, anyone can die at any moment, nothing's safe, keep your eyes open. Like, lesson learned. Yeah, okay, I mean, that's, that's, that was, so that's our non-fiction response. Yeah. But I can see if you're writing a novel, you might say, well, fiction, I've got this character, encounters sudden death, and now he, he's actually completely, or she is completely liberated. Yeah. yeah. And can go and do whatever they want to do, because it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter whether they die, because it's going to happen anyway. Yeah. So yeah, you could react in a different way, I mean, but I that's can, the way we yeah. react. And I've met people who have, absolutely, and you know who've been like oh I just went crazy and I always think oh wow what must it have been like to go crazy it's always funny interesting when equally people are like oh yeah I got really cautious I guess we should set like just because if people haven't read the book so you were on holiday with the family and there's there's four there were four boys yeah and then well do you want to tell what happened is that yeah okay? so the base I'll start where I started when I when I thought this this is a book that I want to write this mm. is a story that I wanted to tell all I knew for myself was so there were four of us in the family i am the second 
Um, so, so Nikki is is nine. I'm eleven. We go. We're on holiday, and this is all I kind of remembered at the time. We go on holiday to Cornwall. Nikki and I go away from the main family group. We go swimming in this cove, and we get into trouble, and he dies. And I had a very clear memory of the actual last moments in the water, which I spent a lot of time trying to get rid of, and have never managed to do mm. it. But apart from that, the way that my brain had processed this, along with the the complicity of the rest of the family, was just to go into complete denial about Nikki's existence really very quickly. So all I knew was I've got this memory of being in the sea with my brother and this vision of him drowning um, with the two of us in the water and my own utterly panicked, kind of scrambled escape from the situation and the very strong sense of survival, which I've I've never had since, fortunately, in this sense where it's absolutely paramount just to live mm. um which is a surge of energy and a surge of of absolute kind of intense meaning that this is the only meaning in this situation so i had that as a core memory and then apart from that i didn't know i didn't know whether nick's body had ever been found i didn't know the date when it happened yeah, I, I didn't know the month when it happened i didn't know where it was um and i and i was in my kind of mid 40s when I started thinking this is ridiculous I know nothing about him all I know is that there are kind of 10 or 11 photos of which I I'm aware of his mm. existence and I his cricket old cricket bat is in a bucket in my mum's shed and that's about all I know and I thought well I can start off by by finding out the date and uh, it turned out to be harder to even find out the date mm. uh, because uh, I, I I only found it out eventually by having to sit down with my mum and just ask her directly and it turned out she was very happy to talk about it she'd been wanting to talk about it all those years but because we got into this pattern of repression and um, this pattern of deleting Nikki from our lives I had never before sat down with her and said mum just tell me something about mm-hmm. him and therefore I, then I gradually got the facts back and I, I it was like an investigation I got together everything I could which said something about him and I found out more about the day and that, that's why it's called the day that went missing mm-hmm. that it was an utterly missing day and he was a missing person and then that so that's what the book is it's about my attempt to, to rediscover him to, to, to discover what had actually happened on the day uh, and why it had happened, and why we'd blocked it out, really. Mm. Um, why Why was this so extreme? I mean, we never we never celebrated his birthday. There was never anything on the day of his death. I couldn't remember his birthday. Do you remember him disappearing? As in, like, do you remember the next year being like, oh, no one said Nick, or did it just slowly happen? I mean, in the book, you say you're all at boarding school, aren't you? So there's yeah. that kind of ease of you're away from your parents, I guess, so that you're not... You know, it's, perhaps you're not there for with them when those anniversaries. Do you remember that, like being, I guess, being twelve and thirteen and being like, oh, it's his birthday, no one said anything, or does it is it all blanked now? No, well, I don't remember any detail like that. Wow. I think there was a strong sense of because the the if you like the real drive for this came from my dad of the drive of the repression. He was mm. the one who's really pushing down. Is that I think by not mentioning Nicky and not thinking about him. I mean, I, I can't speak for my brothers, but I certainly felt I was pleasing them. I was making them happy. Mm. That's what they wanted to happen. And now sometimes my mum would mention his name, but when she mentioned his name, it was almost like a kind of taunt to my dad. It was like oh, a kind of... Wow. But I mean, when I say sometimes, I mean I can probably think of four occasions you wow. know, in, in all those years. She would just say his name as if, you know, we could maybe, you know, someone could say something now mm. and there was the, the the depth of the silence <laughs> which followed the yeah. mention of his name was, was was black and... Uh, it was an utter abyss of silence. And your and, dad never spoke about him? Well, my mum told me, because he died in 2000 and 
11. Mm. So I didn't start the book until after he he died, and I think that's partly why I started. I couldn't I couldn't have even had the concept of doing yeah. this while he was alive. So that was a liberation through death, mm. if you like. I said, here, this death allowed me to explore my brother's death earlier. But my mum told me that they had never talked about it, just the, the two of them, um, which I, I was astonished by. But there were there were details which came out when when I was researching the book that we'd had to, me and my brothers completely blanked out, which turns out I think were probably very significant. Is that we were on holiday and it was a it was a four week holiday because my dad had cancer at the time, which again I brocked out. I didn't. I mean, I knew he had cancer because the back of his neck was carved out for for most of his adult life. Um, but I didn't know it was at that time. Mm. So therefore, it was a longer holiday in which my mum was was going to be with the children um, to sort of, they could practice living without him. He'd just come down for, for two weeks and the other two weeks could have practice wow. um, preparing for his death. So it was a very stressful time yeah. for them. So that was one thing which I, I didn't know about. But the other thing was that after Nicky died, so that was at the end of the second week, we went back up to Swindon, where he come from, so driving up from Cornwall to Swindon via Exeter services. I remember the meal in the Exeter services, <laughs> the fish and chips. It was a treat and, of course, yeah. a desperately sad treat. We didn't really want fish and chips. So I think you know, children know. We knew at the time my mum and dad were trying so hard. To make it okay. But fish and chips isn't going to make it okay no. two days after your brother has died. Nothing makes it okay. And so there was a funeral the ne- the, on the Thursday of the next week. And then... This was the thing that my brothers and I had blocked out, is we went back down to the holiday house, and not just back down to the holiday house, we went back to the beach to finish the holiday, finish the last week of the holiday. I found uh, that, when I read that in the book, I found that extraordinary. I mean, I think sometimes, especially, maybe this is silly, but like the end of the 20th century and the, like the generational, I can see why your parents made that choice in kind of that, diff, but it, it, but I can also, I can't, Imagine making that choice because it just seems like such a generational shift. You know what I mean? Of that that generation being like, well, we booked the holiday, we're going back. Like emotionally, I can't imagine being in that place. But I think that's my privilege of growing up in a much later time where emotions are allowed to be experienced. Well, I think I think there has been a change in, yeah. in the way that um, openness is more valued, yeah, and, and there's yeah. a vocabulary as well for grief, which I don't think existed. But I put, I put it. I, I wrote in the book that I I just I I feel exactly the same way, and I think they must have been temporarily deranged mm. by grief um and i mean the, they probably absolutely were their son had just died like there is a madness you know so but, but I, yeah been... but i do understand it yeah, at the same yeah. time in, in the sense that i mean I, th- I think it's important to say i think they were doing their best oh, they yes, thought this absolutely. was the best yeah. thing to do yeah, yeah. um they weren't deranged in the sense of you know, running around like headless chickens and just the first thing that comes to hand i think that they the, they, the way they thought it was best was i think they thought it was i think the, they personally were probably upset by the const by, by everyone trying to help them mm. and in a very english way they just wanted to get away get from away. people showing them sympathy yeah um and being vulnerable i guess because you're vulnerable when everyone's offering you help. yeah and you feel weak and you yeah. feel you, do, you don't want that to happen in the first place you don't want the situation to have happened mm. and you want to just get somewhere else where it's as if it hasn't happened yeah. and then there was the idea of getting back on the horse i think yeah. is that that it's more than a stiff upper lip it's quite a sort of brutal sense of self-reliance you've got to go back to the beach you've got to, got to yeah essentially just carry on as normal which mm-hmm. means as if nothing had happened and that's in fact what the book says and what this 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 grief cast is about is that pretending nothing has happened that is the real derangement because mm. something has happened in fact the biggest thing that happens in life has happened 
and that's why it's worth talking about it in 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 situations like this it's interesting though isn't it because especially we talk in terms of narrative like for that narrative i guess for your dad for everything to be okay nikki had to not exist like because otherwise you like you said to acknowledge if you acknowledge oh he's died you can't carry on because of course is that a fair thing to say like in terms of i'm just talking about narrative here in your family so maybe that's not very fair well i think it's 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 that it's not you're you're trying to carry on as normal, yeah. But it's not normal, yeah. Because yeah. there's a whole there's a person missing, yeah. There's one person missing, and that's so, I mean the only way you can do that is if it's like well, just block them out. They they're not there. Well, you you can't do it. So yeah. what you ha- the only way to do it is by faking it. You're just faking normal. Mm. So from that point in your life, and we were talking earlier about how you, you know, how you deal with things, whether you become cautious or whether you yeah. you, you throw all caution to the wind. But this is this is a way of living which then is not helpful for lots of different reasons is yeah. essentially something right in the center of your life you just fake it okay there was a boy there's no longer a boy we're just going to fake it we're just going to pretend that boy was never there so the idea of pretense and performing mm. becomes part of your life as well and that's at an age before you even really know what you're doing and you'd end up being you know, 18 19 20 and that's just a way of life mm. so how, how do you how do you make things seem normal you pretend so there is no normal so you lose all orientation in life any any sense of genuine orientation in reality it's, it's, yeah i mean like you said and, and no disrespect to your parents at all like obviously they thought they were they were just doing the best in horrific circumstances and how can i always think that in this show like you can't judge because people judge me for choices i made after my dad died and i was like my dad's just died I'm, i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> like mm. the biggest thing that's ever happened is happening when did you sort of notice that fakery? Like, did you sort of get, to, like, was it in your 20s? Did you think, oh, this isn't okay? Or did you carry right on through? Because I found, like, it took me to, I sort of hit about 30 that I was like, oh, I haven't really dealt with something, have I? These things are not okay. But my 20s, I was able to kind of be like, yeah, it's fine, my dad died, no big deal. You know, these things happen. Like, <laughs> like I don't want to talk about it, basically. So that that meant you, it wasn't you didn't want to talk about it, it's just you weren't ready to talk about yeah, it in I, that period. I think I wasn't ready, and I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of discussion and grief, bereavement with children, and I think they say, the things I've read, that like pre-10, it's ve- like very hard for a child to get the vocabulary, and then sort of like, the, that's the problem. The, the 10 to like 19 is quite tricky, because you sort of, sort of know, but you sort of don't know. And um, like you understand what it means to be dead, but you, you don't have the words for it. So, yeah, I think for a long time I was frozen in not having any vocabulary for it. So I think I, I didn't know how, I just didn't know how to really say, oh, I have this pain and it's so painful and it hasn't gone and it really still hurts. Because I think that that felt like not enough. I was just like, ow, <laughs> ow. <laughs> so I didn't know what to sort of, how to begin talking about it really. Yeah, one one thing which always sticks in my mind is, which again, I, I, this was sort of during the, the period of denial, but I have I remembered it. I remember it for a reason. Was um, a friend of my parents, their daughter died when she was in her mid twenties, right. and it was a kind of an adult yeah. cot death thing. It was sort of very sudden and oh. unexpected. And I happened to be at my parents' house, and I was the same kind of age as her, so I'd have been in my mid twenties. And I picked up the phone, and it was wow. him, and it was something to do with funeral arrangements. And so I asked him how he was. And uh, he said, so the father of this girl who had just died said, in some ways in a very English way because it was measured, but he said, well, of course, we're very miserable. And I thought, well, that's 
I, I th- you know, in a way, it sounds a strange thing to say and a kind of English thing to say. Mm. And, but I thought that, well, that's fantastic. He's admitted that he's yeah. miserable. I think, well, in our family, we never even admitted we were miserable. <laughs> and it's really stuck with me. Is that, well, I, I really admired his honesty to be able mm. to say that because I was expecting him to say, oh, you know. These things happen. <laughs> exactly. Carry on. Yeah. Um, we'll, be, we'll be, you know, give it six months, you know. And, 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 and just to hear an adult say, you know, while I'm, we're, of course, we're very miserable, really struck me. Yeah. And that shows how far we'd gone the other way. Yeah. And the other thing which I think it is, is which I've, I now have very strong feelings on about is um, children and funerals. I think children should go to funerals. And you didn't go to... No, so we didn't go to my own brother's funeral. Yeah. And um, my mum and some other people who were there told me the story of the, the funeral, um, where emotion was shown, where there were adults did cry mm. but one of the problems of I think children not going to the funeral is that we never saw adults cry yeah. so we thought well, we need to deal with it like them they're not sad they're mm. not crying so we need to make a special effort not to cry whereas I think it's a would have been incredibly helpful to go to the funeral, see adults showing emotion, and, and therefore that that uh, shows that the emotion is allowed. We oh, are allowed to feel yeah. sad because they're sad, whereas we got the brave face. When mm. people put on a brave face, the children get the brave face the whole time, and then you just think, well, that's how I should react, and mm. therefore you, you hold everything in. And I think it's so massively underestimated how much children um, do what they see, not do what they're told. Like, you... You can be told, oh, you know, you can talk or we're here. But like, unless someone's doing it, you, you know, you're like, well, how, how do I, how do I do it? Like you said, the vocabulary isn't there. I did an event with um, Marie Curie recently about grief, because that's what I do. And uh, there was a lady who, who deals with children who are bereaved. And she said exactly the same thing, that a lot of adults don't want to get upset. And then she, the way she counsels them is to say like, you know, when you have a cold, you're always saying, you know, you take paracetamol you take cough medicine and she's like it makes you feel better and she's like the tears will make you feel better so that's what you you know we know that we know chemically crying makes you feel better you get it out all of these things so she was like if the adults can start thinking of the tears as medicine and then you can explain to the children like oh crying is good for you it's okay but she meets encounters these adults who are like oh my child's not okay but I'm equally not crying and yeah she said the same thing like if they don't see you dealing with it in that way how, the, how do they how do you know how to I think that's fascinating that that yeah that miserable was to you that guy just saying that was like wow like yeah I thought how honest yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's really gone there yeah so oh, I thought it was interesting as well and said in the book that you and what we were sort of talking about before you were writing stories of deaths and drowning but in your fiction were you aware of that? Like when you started writing these other stories, you talk about that book. I can't remember the name of it. The other one you wrote where there's two brothers and one of them. You sort of yeah, rewrote they, I had it. Written didn't you? it. Well, I, I had I had written the this memory of the actual drowning of being in the water with Nicky when he drowned was something that I came to the point where I wanted to write it. And I was writing a novel. It's called Lazarus is Dead, and Lazarus is the only named friend of Jesus in the Bible. So mm. he has his followers, his disciples, and his family, but Lazarus is the only named friend. So the, the premise of the book is that Jesus and Lazarus is friend, are friends. Lazarus has a young brother who drowns with Lazarus. The two of them are in the water and Jesus is, just stands on the shore and doesn't do anything. Mm. It's a kind of central scene in the book. And I effectively just wrote my memory. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it reads very similarly to <clears throat> how I wrote it in the memoir. And one of the reasons I did that was 
well, I found it, it was a, something powerful in me that wanted to come out. I'm a writer, therefore I eventually mm-hmm. got to writing it down. But that was in my eighth book. It had taken that long to wow. get there. And I thought, well, my family are going to read this. Yeah. And then we're going to have to start talking about that. I think that was an unconscious motivation yeah, 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 yeah. Like, for doing it. Let's do it. So, of course, the book came out. And what I discovered is not all my family read my books. <laughs> um, yeah, welcome to the world of creative. <laughs> People do not indulge in your work as much as you no, think as they as might. Think, exactly. They're I thought to. I was going to get the phone call going, yeah. oh, at last you've talked about that. But in fact, I was playing a trick on myself because I was in the water with Nikki. My brothers weren't in the water. My mum wasn't there. Yeah. Um, and they didn't know what had happened. But it turned out when I came back to the memoir and I said to them, look, I've already written about this. Didn't you kind of notice? is that in the intervening years, because then it had been over 30 years since Nikki had died, they had created their own memories, um, which yeah. had nothing to do with me. But my mum couldn't remember. I was in the, She remembered her other children were, were safe and Nikki went in the water mm. and he drowned. My younger brother remembered had a, had a memory of being told that Nikki had been swept away by a rogue wave, didn't even know he was in the water swimming. Wow. Tim couldn't remember that we were together. Um, uh, so everyone, it was like cre- our memories were like creatures um, which had evolved in different ways because they'd had no connection. And this is another reason to talk about grief is because then you can you can kind of agree and therefore keep a memory yeah. as opposed to really we'd gone a, we'd veered a long way away from each other and I was the only person who knew because I was actually there. So they didn't even know I was in the water. They didn't know I'd had this experience. And therefore I realised. Well, they don't didn't don't know that over all these years that have passed mm. that this is something that's been in my head. So if there was some kind of secret hidden resentment in me, is why does nobody come and say poor you because <laughs> yeah. you had to see your own brother die? Actually, they don't know. I mean, it, it kind of absolved them from yeah. from. I think I probably did have some secret resentment in me that nobody had, had even bothered to you know pat me on the shoulder for thirty years. But they didn't know. They'd been dealing with it in their own way, coping it with it in their own way and one way you can do that if, if everyone is silent about a death is you make up new memories yeah. and they evolve like creatures and they become something completely different from what from the from where they started and i think that's what i meant at the beginning when i very badly said i didn't want to read the book is i thought oh it's just going to be the telling of this it's just going to be like we go to the water this happens and i thought oh i i don't know if i can walk with him through this story but actually what amazed me about the book was that it's about memory. The whole thing is about memory. And I guess why I'm super drawn to that is uh, as I am 20 years ago and my memories fade and are really hard to grasp. Like, And a lot of people I speak to on the show tend to be, I call more, fresh, out the box. So it's like two or three years, they're adults and their memories, I get jealous. I think, oh, they're so stable. They're like, my dad said this, we were in this hospital. Whereas I'm like... I say things on the show. My mum then texts me next week, like, that didn't happen. Like, that, he wasn't in a hospice. He was in a hospital. I'm like... Because, especially as a kid, you know, you already, everything's already a bit blurry. You don't really know how you got somewhere. You just in a car, get put in a car and you turn up. So I think the book deals with that really well. And I found the bit where your mum said, because you have a conversation with her, don't you? And she says, no, like you were next to me. Like she thought you were there and you were in, you, in reality, you were in the water with Nikki. Like I found that amazing how you said people's memories just... That, that's, do what they want yeah, to do. Yeah, that, that's how she coped with it. By yeah. in her memory, she had her th- three of the safe boys were safe on the sand yeah. with her having the picnic, whereas the unsafe boy had gone off and 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 had drowned. Yeah. Um. And clearly, that was a way of coping. It was of a way course, of saying, yeah. well, because she could have lost two sons on oh on the same God, day, yeah. and that must have been an unbearable thought to her as well. Oh um, yeah, there's so much for your mum to 
to take in and to deal with. It's just, and I don't blame her for that memory at all. Like I completely understood why you would protect yourself like that. But I found it, I guess it's, this maybe sounds a bit cold, but it's an interesting experiment to read your book because because there were so separate memories because I guess my, and a different family might have talked and arranged the memories in a different God. Oh no, that's what happened. But because you said they had become so separate, the, the four of you, they had completely, like the fact that you said you're the younger brother, who's obviously much younger and even less equipped to deal with quite what happened that day, had made up this sort of dramatic story that, you know, almost has a... Yeah, it feels like a story that he's been told and his brain t- twisted it, doesn't it, rather than like a reality to it. Yeah, and, and it, it, it's amazing how durable those kind of false memories can yeah, be as well. Because yeah. when I, I sat down with each of my, well, two of my brothers and with my mum um, and, and those, they're not, they're, I suppose they were interviews, if you like. I interviewed yeah, my own yeah. family, which is a very strange thing to do. <laughs> um, but uh, I said to him, well, you, you know, do you know anyone else who's been swept away by a wave? Uh, when you go to the, on a holiday to the seaside with your kids, are you worried that they'll just yeah. walk along and a wave will come and sweep them away? I know it can happen to fishermen if they're yeah, out on yeah. rocks. and it, it, it can happen, but it's not something we tend to worry about when you're just walking along the seashore. Yeah. And, and he'd never really thought about it in those terms. And that's... We, we hold on to yeah. memories that protect us. I also love that that interrogation is only the way a big brother could interrogate a little brother. <laughs> like, the way you interrogate was like, I mean, really? <laughs> like, that's what you thought happened. Which also made me um, laugh in the book. The, the way the brothers interact with each other was, yeah, it was nice. Yeah, but that it? was one of the, 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 if you like, I mean, yeah, it's a joy. I'm going to say the word joy yeah, of yeah. the book is that in recovering Nikki, I realised that, we had this this idealised... Part of my view of him was he was kind of... Not that he was idealised, but... And this connects to what I, I kind of stopped before when I was, and I was, I was thinking about this in terms of my mum remembering her three boys safe and then Nicky going off to drown. Mm. But that's because he took on the role of the dead brother. That's yeah. what he was. And unfortunately, after he died, that's all he was. He's just, yeah, he's my, he's my dead brother. You know, what does he do? He's dead. You know, what, what's his favourite hobby? He's dead. That's all he had. <laughs> he's just the dead brother yeah. in the story. And you were talking about narratives before. But when I actually looked into it and tried to remember properly, I, you know, I remembered that we had proper rivalry. We were in competition with each other. Quite often we didn't like each other mm. in the way that brothers, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, rough and tumble. But essentially we, we were the closest, we were closest in age. He was good at stuff and therefore he's always catching me up. I quite get quite angry about that and, and, and want to, you know, grab my share of attention whenever I can. All that I'd forgotten. He was just the dead brother. Yeah. And then suddenly he's this real living being know who I I didn't always like very much because he was the person who was going to take my share yeah yeah um, and I was really happy to recover that and realize yeah this is true I thought and in terms of memory it's not often you can say this is true yeah. and that's what you're looking for in a memoir we talk about non-fiction and, and fiction but that's the that's the kind of core that you're looking for in the non-fiction this is true and I knew that was true and I was really happy to rediscover it and also I guess like you said to rediscover him because I think that's We've talked about it before. Like, I think it's so important, like, to not put the dead on a pedestal after they're gone. You know, everyone. I had that bit of everyone's like, "Oh, you know, he was so one. He just loved your family." And I was like, "Like, yeah," but also other stuff. <laughs> like, I had a difficult relationship with my dad, and you know, as much as I, you know, obviously loved him and and was sad he was dead. There was like lots of other stuff and. And whenever someone would make him this saint, it would make me feel so guilty about the other thoughts I had of like, well, we kind of didn't 
the last couple of weeks were quite tricky and I was rowing with him and then you think oh my god I'm a terrible person because the saint died and I wasn't very nice to them rather than the truth of like people are like and that's what I loved about the book as well like Nikki the, the way you talked about them was just like yeah like you were an idiot he was an idiot like you just sounded like boys that fought and then got on and didn't get on and and like you said it felt it felt so much more real than the dead boy who isn't mentioned and yeah it either becomes like you said the dead are either like sainted and angels or they just mm. they don't well, exist. Well, the letters of consolation here are, are, yeah. are, are part of that process. I don't know. Did you read all the letters yeah, of no. condolence? No, I mean, I don't even know where they are. <laughs> like, but they're very interesting. Yeah. I think they're an interesting thing to keep and therefore to they yeah, are to, to read later on because not necessarily because, I mean, there are there will be interesting stories as mm. they were about Nikki. I mean, there are over 100, I think 170, which oh, when I put the ones gosh. which were written to my parents together to the ones which were written to my grand, so there were like two sets. And because it was a letter writing age as well yeah, yeah. Um, in 1978. And those have a lot of, he was the greatest boy who ever lived. Mm. And although there are interesting stories and you get some sense of some of the things that he, he did when people want to tell a memory and, uh, and uh, fix that in their own mind by writing it down, as much as anything, he came alive as a, as a contrast to that. And I was looking at these things going, he, this can't be true. <laughs> there were people writing things like, yeah, he's a fantastic conversationalist. <laughs> He was nine. You know, how, I mean, I'm sure he could hold a conversation yeah, because he's a very yeah. bright boy. But um, it, it, it does kind of, I think they're, they're, they, they were as useful a resource as, as any. I had yeah. to try and recapture him later because I could sort of tell what was uh, a little bit fake. And they're very hard things to write. Of course, of yeah, yeah. Like, which everybody knows. His, nobody his wants to write like, oh, we weren't um, getting on right now. <laughs> like, yeah, and, which I get, but like that's important, I guess, to you maybe not write that down, but you talk about that stuff. Because I think talking sometimes doesn't have the weight as well. So you can talk, hopefully, amongst the family and be like, oh, yeah. We do that a lot as a family. We'll remember, like, idiot stuff that my dad did. <laughs> like, God, do you remember when he did that? It was, like, utterly embarrassing. Do you remember the time he took us to someone's house, a business associate's house, and we were all there in America at this dinner and then they left to go and get the dinner ready and he turned around and said he didn't know who this family was. Like, he'd booked the wrong person. And it's like stories like that. We were like, they're so heartwarming when someone's gone to remember, like, not like the bad things they did, just the human things, I guess. Yeah, yeah the human. Like, that they, and you put some lovely stuff about Nikki, like the rows you had or the, the naughty things he did that make you feel like, especially, I guess, if you're talking in terms of character and writing and narrative, but you go, oh, I can really, I can really see that kid now. There's not a softness, but there's a softening in the pain when something is more real. Yeah, I think that's right. And and death can be very elevating in a not particularly helpful way. Yeah, as yeah. As, as pedestals are raised and, and the dead are put on those Especially pedestals. with a child. I mean, God, of course. Yeah, I think... Um, Somewhere I put that, that death is character building. So I'm looking at this thing, and his character's amazing now that he's dead. So we should, it's like a, like an English education. We should all go through this because yeah. we become amazing. Yeah, well, that's how I felt after my dad died, and they were just the way they were talking about him. I was like, this guy sounds amazing. Who's this guy? <laughs> like, and again, it's it's not. He was a really great person, but he was also really flawed. Like as as all great people yeah. are. And, and but that I think is one of the things which. Uh, which gets tangled up in the grief straight away is this this fear that I mean I'm talking now about people I've known who have died mm. since I've been an adult yeah. is that the 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 reality will disappear yeah. that the real the, the, the real person will get lost somehow in the these mixture of I mean there there are sometimes sentimental memories there are exaggerated memories 
and you don't want the real person to be lost, and yeah. that's what you have to try and hold on to. And that's why it's so useful, as you're saying, your family, you talk and you tell those stories. It kind of cements the real person. You don't want to cement the real person because that means they're fixed, and yeah, you, you yeah. never get them out. But it's, it just it's, cements that moment, I think, and it, I find it really. And also with the family as well. People remember different stuff. So, you know, my mum will be like, no, that's not what happened. He said this. And me and my brother are like, oh, yeah. Like, And there's, it's such a joy to remember someone genuinely, you know. And I agree, the, the fakery doesn't feel like remembering them. It feel, It's performative. Yeah. It's like, oh, this person's telling me my father was wonderful because they don't want to be rude. And I am agreeing because I don't want to be rude. And then that doesn't really involve my father at all. <laughs> like, that's me and that person having a strange conversation, very polite, and no one's crying. But, yeah, that's not him. But it's like a kind of deal, I think, that um, sometimes people make because death is so scary. The, yeah. the, the idea of not speaking ill of the dead, that's because you're in a way um, paying a tribute to death and death will somehow spare you yeah. yourself <laughs> yeah, yeah. from from death, if not from the pain of death, if you're Definitely. just nice about dead people. and the, So it's all tangled up in the strange relationship that we have with yeah. death, generally. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. In your 20s and uh, later, did you, did you go and seek help? Did you feel like, I have to go and talk to someone about this? Uh, no, although not in my 20s or 30s. But eventually, in my forties, it's, like, it's like it's like it's like it's like you know you think you're gonna run a two hundred meter race. That is a four hundred meter. Before you know yeah. it, you're doing half marathon. <laughs> before you get to the uh, to, to looking for help, really seeking yeah. help. Um, but I didn't go to talk about Nikki and to talk about death. I went because I was worried about not feeling things very deeply. Mm. And although that hadn't particularly bothered me, and the reason it hadn't bothered me until my 40s was because I'd been taught at a very early age that that's actually how you survive. That's yeah. how you get on and probably how you're successful. Mm. Don't feel things, just get on and do things. So, you know, don't feel, just act. Um, but then it did start bothering me um, because the repression of grief is not a precision tool. Yeah, you want yeah. to get rid of the grief, but you get rid of lots of other stuff as well. And if you can't feel grief, which is what you wanted as a positive outcome... 
I think you're going to find that you can't feel joy, you can't feel happiness, and you can't feel love, essentially. Mm. Um, and that's something to regret when your own death comes into view, which I think when you get into your 40s is something that starts to, to happen. Um, so then I did go to therapy, but I didn't know. Um, oh, that's what I wanted to talk about, really. I just want to talk about how to try and correct this. Yeah. Um, thinking, you know, <laughs> yeah. A couple of times should do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, and then within about, um, I was very lucky. I found someone who's very helpful straight away. And really, I think it must have been the second session. I just mentioned in passing. <laughs> yeah, I had a dead brother, and you're like trying to see his eyes go. Oh, we need to go have a talk about this. Oh, that's why he's here. But yeah. I hadn't even considered that that yeah. might have it. It had been. We'd been in such denial about it. I didn't think this is something I need to go and talk about. And then suddenly, of course, I'm sitting in that context where you can say whatever you want. Because I just went with the with the mindset, I'm paying for this. I'm going to get my money's worth. I'm going to say whatever <laughs> comes into my head. That's my only thing. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to hold anything back because that's what I do outside that. Yep. So here I'm just going to say whatever comes into my head. Um, and then as soon as he, you know, I mentioned Nikki and Nikki dying and I was 11 and he's nine and then I just think why this is what I have to talk about but I didn't go for that and I didn't know that that's what the subject was uh, which I think is quite interesting it's it's, the grief will come back you push it down it will seep out the sides of however you're trying to tread on it and it it will come up it will rise up and it will manifest itself in your life in some way and unless you realise that the cause is because you're stamping down on it and it's coming out the sides, then you're never going to get rid of that strange sensation of something bubbling up, which you don't really like. Yeah, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know to make you feel better, but, like, I came from a family where it was talked about. I could talk about it. We cried in front of each other all the time. And then I didn't go to therapy till I was, yeah, my, I sort of hit my 30s. And I had no idea that that was the problem. Equally, again, I was like... Oh, I'm just really stressed. I'm just really stressed and not coping very well. That's what I get. I'm not coping with things. Like when things happen, I, I react quite strangely in a way that I see from people's faces is not what they expected me to react. <laughs> and then I, again, was like, oh, you know, my dad died. But, you know, that really, there's much more other stuff that we could probably talk about. <laughs> and now every week I'm like, it's probably about my dad, isn't it? Like, I'm just like, let's just cut to the chase. You know, I didn't get this thing and I'm upset about it, but it's probably because my dad died. And I wonder if that comes from being a child. Like if, you know, it's just because it happened when you weren't a person yet. You were still forming yourself. And so it's it's still quite hard to pinpoint it. Of Like you said, of like, oh, what's that? Like, is that grief or is this because it happened when you weren't a fully you yet? Yeah, I think one of the helpful things which I, I accept now and I think is, is true is that even with a sort of major traumatic event when you're a, you're a child, that doesn't explain everything. Um, no, true. <laughs> and I, I really like the idea, or in the sense that I'm convinced by and persuaded by it, that whatever fault lines there are in a family or in the family dynamic, however the dynamic works, if there's a major traumatic event like a death of any family member, really, they will just exaggerate what is already there. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. And therefore, it's it you. It, it's not possible just to look at that one event. So, well, if that hadn't happened, we'd yeah. have been a happy family. Oh no, no. There were already secrets. There were already things which weren't being expressed, and then that completely exaggerates yeah. that and and just widens those fault lines which are already there. <clears> and I think that's quite useful to remember. Yeah, that's that's yeah. You're, I definitely wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't blame everything on that. But um, I think until you've dealt with the earthquake you can't almost work out what 
all the other problems are. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, well, it's like, very useful in showing you what yeah. the, you may not notice them because they might have been so small yes, and they might yeah, have been just yeah. undercurrents in your family relationship. But obviously, nothing remains an undercurrent yeah. from the point of view of a death is that everything comes to the surface. Yeah, and I think that's what's tricky. Like, we had, me and my dad had not a great relationship anyway. And then he dies and it's like, well, that really fucked me off, to be honest. He died. <laughs> because I was like, I was in the middle of a row. That's how I felt. It was like, well, what the fuck? Where's he gone? <laughs> this is what we do. We like sort of spar and have a row and he's annoying. And it's like, so it was like, definitely already a problem but I suppose avoiding for years like how I felt about how his death hadn't enabled me yeah it enabled me to I guess because the guilt so it's like once you deal with the thing and like oh well I don't need to actually feel bad about how we got on that's just how we got on then they can sort of start processing um but yeah it's you're right that's a very important thing to say that it definitely isn't the be all and end all it's the the magnifying glass, I guess, or as you already eloquently said, the yeah, the fault lines are already there. Um, did you have therapy before you wrote the book, or did it come afterwards? Because I thought even writing it must have been quite hard on you. I, no, I started before I started writing the Good. book. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I'm glad to hear there was like support in writing it. Because you go back to Cornwall, but you go back to the beach. You walk down like the description of like walking down and how hard it is to even get to this bloody beach and I thought god it must have been obviously really important to go but it must have been fucking hard yes but at the same time there was a there was a, a curiosity yeah. which needed to be sated and because I had no memory of it I was I was my subconscious was leading me wow. um through that that whole trip, if you like, when I went back, because I didn't know where it was, and I thought, well, I'll recognise. I just allow myself to recognise it, and I kept going wrong. I, I, I couldn't find it because the, the the subconscious really was telling you, you don't want to do this. Yeah, but my amazing. biggest fear when I went back was I would find the place, I could stand on the the same beach at the same level of tide, and I would feel nothing. That was actually mm. the, the biggest fear I had. Um, I was terrified of feeling something, but I was even more terrified of feeling nothing. nothing. And I didn't know what would happen, and that is quite a large part of the book, is that the, the 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 emotional response I had to finding the place and my mind's eye, like recognising it and trying to find exactly the same conditions of, of tide, and which yeah. became a bit of an obsession, really, yeah. um, so that I would get the most emotion out of it because <laughs> I did feel and I felt very strongly and my body physically reacted in ways that I hadn't predicted at all. But it shows how consuming grief is because... Mm. It was my body. My body was was itself acting out a response to, 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 to this grief. It had remembered. Um, whereas my conscious mind had gone off and done all these other things in my life and, and, and blacked this out, but my body didn't forget. And then it all came back when I was actually in the place and the place became very important. Mm. Yeah, I, I, the bit you write about when you sort of get what the condition's right and you're there, I found really moving and... Yeah, it's. I think it's just, it's very hard for us as intellectual beings to get our heads around sometimes because, like you said, your subconscious had done such a good job, like such an amazing job of like, no, gone, protect it, that, that the body doesn't, that doesn't then filter down and your body's like, okay, cool, sure, don't worry, I'll, I'll forget it as well. Like, it, it doesn't. And your description of it was really powerful. I really, what's the word? I just connected with it. I just really connected with standing at the edge of the world and feeling like, and just feeling the pain that, of all that sensation. And I imagine what you had was double that because you were, you know, at the scene of his death. So I'm glad that you had some counselling. But I think there's a, there's a double it. grief, which 
came out of this this denial. So there's the, the grief for the death, yeah. but then there was also a grief for not expressing grief at the time, yeah. and that becomes quite complicated intellectually. And you can, I or I can anyway, because that's how my brain works. I could go and um, kind of explore that intellectually for yeah. some time and completely <laughs> distract myself and yes. not feel anything. Yeah. Um, but actually, it was very raw. But the rawness wasn't just grief at the fact that Nikki died. It was also this grief at this utter exclusion of grief at the time. Yeah, I felt yeah. very sorry for all of us for not having been able to feel sorry at the time. Yeah. Um, and then I just wanted to allow that to come out as as feeling. And it was a very it was very pure emotion that came out. Um, and I was immensely relieved. And you were saying about tears being a, a medicine. Mm-hmm. That that's that's how it felt. It felt like a very cleansing thing to go through. Um, sometimes I wish I could. Well, I don't do it on a regular basis because my <laughs> temperament is to not want to go through yeah, these things yeah. on a regular basis. I know but what you it mean. was, in fact, very, very, felt very cleansing. It felt like a great relief at the time. Yeah. And there is that weird, not euphoria, but because you are lighter after you've done something like that, there are feelings of goodness after you've had that big cry. And it's almost like getting to it is so awful when you're having a bad day and you know, grief is getting to you and you, you're, you're fighting it so hard. And then the right thing that allows it to come out, that tap to be turned on, you know, afterwards you do feel like that moment when you like, you're like, oh, okay. Like, I'm glad that's out. I'm glad that's out of my body because that's what it needs to be. It needs to be processed. But I think you just write so eloquently about, like you said, feeling sorry for all of you because it's no one's fault that these things happen. They just happen. Um, You said at the beginning, like, trying to get back to the boy before the event. Do you think you have by writing it? Do you think that, or do you think it's, you know, is irrevocably not, he didn't really exist in a way, or...? No, I th- I think the one of the things which come out of the book is is the danger of hoping that you'll be saved by epiphanies. Yeah, in life. yeah. Um, <laughs> especially that, if you're into narrative. <laughs> yes, exactly. And yeah. fiction writers, we love our mm. epiphanies. Oh I yeah, mean, and everything it, is done. <laughs> yeah, and there'll be one moment credits. where everything becomes yep, clear, perfect. and then everyone gets married at the end, and yep. then everyone's happy. Um, and the epiphany of finding the day that went missing. Yeah, it was fantastic to get as much of it together as I could, and the day is no longer missing. Um, or not all of it. Some bits of every day will be missing. Yeah. But it has been recovered. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that my habits of repression, our family habits of yeah, repression, yeah. have completely yeah. disappeared overnight. <laughs> um, we went out for, for lunch on um, my brother and I and my mum on the anniversary of Nikki's birthday this year, which was in wow. March. Um, and we sat down, we are having a nice Sunday lunch, you know, roast dinner, but we didn't actually talk about him until we got to about coffee. And, yeah. then, and then we got round to it. But it's it's a, it's, That's it's something. Huge. It's yeah, better. Yeah. yeah, but it, it wasn't like we sat down and it was all, we were telling stories like you were saying about yeah. your dad. And um, it took a while to get there because yeah. you have these habits that it's very hard to break. It's a kind of slow process and I think it requires attention. It mm. requires a kind of conscious decision to keep Nikki in mind. Um, sometimes I can still forget you know, his birthday, the actual day of his birthday can go past and I go, oh, that's a, I just missed it again. Mm. Um, there isn't a kind of catharsis where everything has changed, now everything is better, but it's made me very aware of a habit of repression which just needs to be policed by myself. Not yeah. in a kind of brutal way. My, my inner policing here isn't... Yeah, um, gentle policing. Yes, exactly. They're not coming in a big van with bars over the windows. <laughs> it's, it's just community policing. I'm doing community policing <laughs> of my own yeah, yeah. Um, remembering of Nikki. Do you feel you have the like Nikki's flame slightly? Like, do you feel like it's your job to kind of keep him? 
Well, I think present. that's a really good question. I'd be interested to know what you think <laughs> yeah, about this as well, you because question. you know, yeah. I wrote the book. Mm. I, mean, I was closest to him in age. I wrote the, but I wrote the book, and therefore. I think it's really dangerous to start thinking, well, Nicky's now mine. He's my mm. territory. I did Nicky. You know, I've, yeah. I have I wrote this book and therefore I'm the Nicky expert in our family. You know, for all your Nicky needs, come to me. <laughs> um, that's not really fair. Everybody's got their memories. My yeah. brothers aren't writers, but they've got their memories. They've got that absolutely equal right to, yeah. to, to Nicky and their memories of him and his role in their life. And my mum especially. Course, I feel yeah. sometimes there is a slight territorial tussle between us. So since I've written the book, she'll remember something. Um, and sometimes things which I wish she'd remembered before because they're beautiful <laughs> and poetic. Yeah. She told me, this is after the book's written, so it's not in the book, that um, for, for I, th- I can't remember the period of time, but it was for a period of time after Nicky died that her arms would ache. So we talked about that. And we think it was probably because either in her sleep or, or, or somehow unconsciously she was trying to hug him, him and yeah. her arms were aching. And it was something that she remembered after the death of her child. I found that incredibly moving. Yeah. But she remember, she will remember things like this occasionally. And I think it is, um, it's partly because we're thinking about Nikki now and therefore yeah. the memories are coming back. But there's also a slight territorial thing here that mum says well that's that was mine and you didn't get that <laughs> um but as long as we're aware well, of didn't this, make the book did it which yeah, <laughs> exactly you don't know everything um well, of course she's she's his mom yeah and as like, long as we're aware of that, that yeah. that's fine and in a way i can't i can't enter her grief you can't enter other people's grief no. which is one of the reasons why it's devastating is because you're very alone but you don't have to be completely alone but there will always be a bit that nobody else can touch god yeah and that is what a your mum, that is a really beautiful thing to say. Like, both of us are <laughs> welling up at that because that is, yeah, really sad, really sad. And in a way, it's nice, I guess, that it, it wasn't in the book because it's like, yeah, there it's are nice still, for her to yeah, have. That yeah. is so personal, so personal. Yeah, I think I definitely, the reason I'm interested is because, yeah, I equally <laughs> am the one who does the podcast, the one who does write about him. And... um yeah, I don't. I definitely don't feel like the expert. Definitely not because I'm. My brother is older, so there's a whole which I'm now really understanding. Now I've had a child like he's four years older. Which when I was a kid, I was like, so what? What's four years? Big deal. And now you're like, oh, four years is massive. So much can happen. And so I, I don't feel like the expert on him at all. But I suppose I do feel like. I suppose I feel like it's it's more about my grief and it's more about like my continuing the conversation and I don't feel yeah I don't feel like it's too much about them it feels like this is my my story my grief and that I didn't get to finish conversation so I'm sort of carrying it on (laughs) with him in the background um but I don't feel like my mum and my brother have that need in the same way that I do because of the different relationships and different dynamics and you know, they were older when it happened and they went to counselling as well at different times and I did—I really didn't. I really sort of didn't know what how to talk about it. So now I feel like once I opened the door, I was like, I'm not closing. <laughs> I know that feeling of being the only one sort of, talk, sort of discussing it and investigating it. But it's not to say they're not, they're just not doing it in a way that we are in a sort of public forum. Well, that's a question of letting everyone grieve in their own yeah, yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, even if you don't always understand how that is. But it would be very odd for you to say to your brother, well, you should do a grief cast. <laughs> yeah. That would really help. I know. Actually, someone tweeted me and was like, you should get your mum and your brother on the show. And I was like, they don't really, they don't want to. I mean, my mum definitely didn't want to. 
my brother listens, let me know. You'll be welcome. Um, <laughs> God, that would be hilarious. Because it would just be arguments over memories. I can memories. see in your face. You just imagine that. You thought, I just really don't want to do yeah, that. Yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> because you get these arguments about memories, you know? Like, there's a lot of, like, that's not what... I, and me and my brother can argue. But, um, yeah, I think that's really important that they've let me grieve like this. Like, I think that's quite nice as well. Like, they don't mind me doing the show. And I equally don't feel compelled to have them on the show. And don't mind that they don't talk about it and funny enough dates is a big thing because I remember the date my dad's anniversary is like burned into my brain but my brother forgets it absolutely forgets it and for years we've always been a bit like I have to sort of remind him and he was listening to the show and he said that other guest said they forget the date so it's not just me (laughs) and I was like yeah it's not it's just however you process it you know it's it's very very personal do you think you're right about it again or do you feel like you've kind of done or it's a strange question but not done well I th- I, it, it felt like I it was a kind of comprehensive investigation mm. into that you know, the event of my brother's death um, yeah. I think I can't help but write about it in terms of this mystery I was talking about of fiction you know, where, yeah. does, where does fiction come from I think it will continue to come out I mean, one of the things that I noticed when I started writing the non-fiction book about Nikki and about I was trying to re- well, recover my dad's role in it all. And yeah. then I looked through my book, my novels and every and every one of my novels had a bad dad. You know, the dads <laughs> are drunks, they, they fall off ladders, they, they're kind of demanding, they, they're, they're going to neglect their children, they get arrested for selling, you know, cigarettes to underage people that happened in one of the books. <laughs> I mean, there's just, all the dads, they were just bad dads. I had yeah. a succession of bad dads. And that was to do with Nicky's death. And that was to do with my own sense of, well, why, why didn't he save Nicky? That's yeah. what dads are for. Um, and... So that's one way in which which it would come out in the fiction. And in this novel I'm writing, I'm sure there are aspects of Nick's death which, which which come out. But certainly I I don't feel I'm going towards something in any more. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost as if having written that book um, and discovered, I think, the source for a lot of the, the material that I was fictionalising before, it's almost like I'm now writing my first proper novel. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. For my 11th book will be my first proper novel. All the other ones were like faints towards this yeah. this one subject. But now I feel I can open up to, to other subjects. So I don't think I'll be writing about it directly, but I think it will always be there in some yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. it's so interesting, isn't it? Like you you sort of have to process and deal with these things. Otherwise it, it comes out in these myriad of ways, sometimes great in fiction and sometimes bad in emotions. But yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I feel like that as well. If I was to do another podcast, it probably wouldn't be death related. <laughs> I've definitely dealt with a lot of this. Um, Richard, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for inviting me in. No, it's a pleasure to talk about Nikki and your brilliant book, The Day That Went Missing. You can follow Richard on Twitter at BeardRichard, that's B-E-A-R-D, and then Richard. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was edited by Kate Holland with thanks to Whistledown Studios, and the music was provided by The Glue Ensemble. And remember, you are not alone. <laughs>